Well, when Tim asked all of us, uh, I remember that day when we were gathered in an elders meeting and uh, uh, we were talking about what to do in the summer and um, the idea of taking a break from Romans and then moving into the Psalms came about. And, and I knew right then that if each of us got a chance to unpack a Psalm, and, and like Tim said last week, there's all kinds of psalms in there. There's all kinds of emotion. There's all kinds of things from difficult things to praises to real things in our lives, all of it being real. I knew right then I was going to pick a psalm of high praise. I just thought, what an opportunity to pick a psalm that would bring us to praising God for who He really is. And, and so uh, that's one of the reasons I began to look through and found 145 as one that that I'd like to share this morning. Well, we're going to take a journey to the highest of heights, to the unsearchable greatness of our, of our majestic and righteous God. And it's going to challenge you, as it challenged me, with the question, how big is our God? In fact, a better word would be, how great is our God? How majestic is our God? And you could say, how holy is He? And so I hope that by the time at the end of the service, you're going to know how great He is. Well, why should we spend so much time exploring the character of God? What practical effect does that have on us now? I mean, we could talk about God, but what does that do to us? What does that do for us? Well, I believe that our praise is proportional to the object of our praise. Now, in other words, the bigger our God, the bigger our praise should be for Him. Now, our praise will never equal God, but our praise ought to be proportional to Him. And in the same way, the greater God's holiness is, the more grievous our sin against Him is. I wonder if David may have felt this way as he wrote this, that uh, a big God deserves big praise. And a big God and a righteous God and a holy God requires great repentance and faith and trust. And so let's take a look now in 145 for a moment and, and see what David said about it. Now, before we actually go to the heavenlies, let me tell you first my real first experience with the Psalms. My first real in-depth experience with the Psalms came during my seminary days at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth. Beth and I had just gotten married, and in my last semester, I chose an elective. And you know what an elective is. That's when you get to go outside of the requirements, and you get to pick something you want to do, pick something that you really, really are interested in. Well, I chose, I saw through the catalog my options. And one of the options was an elective, the Psalms. And I knew that it would be a rich and wonderful devotional experience. Something that I knew there was something in the Psalms that would be so rich, so powerful in my life. I didn't want to go out of seminary without at least tapping into this book. And so I, I chose to take the Psalms. My first day in class, I was handed a syllabus for the course. Have you ever heard of that illness that you get when you have the syllabus handed to you? It's called syllabitis. Syllabite us. It's, it's syllabitis. You get that fear factor that what 
kind of a class, what it's going to be required of me. Well, I read along and I saw that there were two required textbooks beyond the Scripture. Two books and two exams. Okay, I'm good with that, all right? Just, I just have to read two, and they were fairly small, two booklets and two exams. Well, that sounded okay. And then I began to read on. During this course, you will also be required to read the entire book of Psalms. Well, I should have known that. I'm taking the Psalms uh, that, the t- that the professor, if he's worth anything, would actually challenge us to read it. And then during, also not only read the Psalms, create a journal describing each one of them in your own words. Following that assignment, you will write an essay describing your approach to that and your experience on top of two exams, two other textbooks, and the the scriptures. Well, I said, "Uh uh-oh, what have I got myself into? I had other difficult classes, and this was my elective. I mean, this is my choosing. This is my option class, and I'm going to be asked to read all of the Psalms, write down my thoughts for each one of them, journal every one of them, including 119, and take exams, and listen to lectures, and have all my other classes. I came home from seminary that day to, my little, to our little apartment, and I told Beth that I was going to need her help. I shared with her that very assignment, and I asked if she would be willing to read out loud the Psalms. I would jot down my thoughts along the way. We did did a few at a time. We didn't do it in one long night. We did it a few at a time, and she was reading, I was writing. It was wonderful. We managed to make it through all 150 Psalms. Together, teamwork in God's Word. Well, I still think of that assignment as one of, get this, that was one of my highlights of my seminary experience. The Psalms, reading them, experiencing them, feeling them. And then to be able to do it together as a, as a young married couple, it was, it was wonderful. Now, Beth might not have thought it was one. She had the homework. She had the homework too. No, it was great. Well, one of the Psalms that Beth read to me was Psalm 145, so let's take a close look at this majestic hymn of praise authored by David himself. I've entitled the message, we've kind of had a little, I mean, Kurt tried to tell me my title and he botched it. He botched it. Here's the title, The Glorious Splendor of God's Majestic Holiness. Now, that was just a shot at it and it doesn't even do it justice. The Glorious Splendor of God's Majestic Holiness. Well, I was looking through uh, what has been said about this psalm, and Pastor Sam Storms describes this psalm like this. Not only does this psalm provide a marvelous declaration of the majesty and incomparable greatness of God, it also instructs us on our responsibility to worship Him as He deserves. If you're going to read a psalm about the greatness of God, then you better be willing to worship Him as such. You got this? I mean, that's why it's practical for us to read about the character of God. You know the God in which you praise. And the greater your God, the greater your praise should be for Him. And so I agree with Sam Storms in his 
statement that it changes the way we worship. So let's let's unpack this verse by verse. Now, not all the Psalms you can go verse by verse, but this one just seems to lend itself to that. So uh, let's do it. It's also, by the way, the last psalm we have of David. The rest of the, the psalms are other hymns for the, for the uh, children of Israel to sing along as a, as a corporate way. But this is the last one recorded by David. Verse 1 and 2. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Well, notice here that David writes, my God and king. And you could actually say that, my God and my king. What's that speak to? Well, it speaks to David's personal relationship, intimate relationship he has with God. He didn't just say God of the heavens. He said, my God. He said, my king. He's not just the God of the universe. He's my God who is the God of the universe. Notice also both verse 1 and 2, he says, forever and ever. I will praise Him forever and ever. It's eternal. I can't imagine a day not praising God. This is not only eternal for God, I'm eternal. I'm going to praise Him forever and ever. It says in verse 2, every day. Not a day should pass. Now, agree with me or disagree. There should not be a day pass that we as God's people don't acknowledge Him as the God of all creation. Not a day should pass that you don't praise Him for who He is. David says, every day I bless you. Let's look at verse 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness, get this, His greatness is unsearchable. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. And then he says, his greatness, I can't even, I can't even get to how great he is. He's unsearchably great. Well, what does he mean by that? He's unsearchable. David declares, great is the Lord. He answers the unsearchably great. That would be like us saying, God is ungoogleably great. He's ungoogleable. You can't Google his greatness. You know why? Because everybody, anytime you Google how great is God, you've got some person that wrote how great he is. And that person doesn't know how great he is. Like David, he's unsearchable. So I'm asking you the question, how great is God? The greatest of great, greater than great. In fact, I didn't put this in my manuscript, but I think of words that Paul used for us as believers. The victory in Christ How victorious are we? Well, Paul says we are more than conquerors. Well, if you're a conqueror, how can you be more than a conqueror? If you're great, how can you be more than great? you got God being unsearchably great. I I love that. And if He's that great, we ought to praise Him as such. Verse 4, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Now, what is David referring to? is of your works. Well, it's talking about creation. Talking about the works of His hand, the, work of his, the works of His Word. This speaks to the ongoing sovereignty of God. There will be no generation that does not have the mighty works of God on display before Him. Just like we heard the rain here. Whose rain is it? It's God's rain. It's, it's everything we experience in this world is created by God. And there is no generation that will not have 
on display God in His creation. Every generation will commend to another. Verse 5, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. Now, on the glorious splendors of your majesty is a massive description of God. Notice here the personal devotion and the dedication of David. At the end of verse 5, he says, I will meditate. I don't care what everybody else does, but I will meditate. That's what I'm going to do. I will meditate on what? Do you see it? The glorious splendor. As I would say, the fantastic awe of God's majesty and rule. He is, David is in wonder of the wondrous works of God. He is in wonder, in awe of the works of God. Are you? Are you kind of over creation? <laughs> Have you gotten over that when you see a sunrise or a sunset? Oh, yeah, there's another one. Uh, the birds, the, the animals, the things. That, the, the, some of you, like, when they're go, our students are gone to Estes Park, they're going to see majestic mountains, and they're going to see mountain rivers, and, and they're going to see some wonderful things out there. Are you over creation? David said, I am going to meditate on that because by meditating on the works of God, I see God, the one who made it, the one who did it. Um, when was the last time that you got carried away in the awe of God? When was the last time you were just caught by amazement at the power of God? Whether it be the power of creation or whether it be the power of the cross, the empty tomb. There's some awe in that. All right, verse 6. They shall speak of the might of your awesome, well, actually the word awesome could be translated terrible deeds. I will declare your greatness. Look at verse 6. They will speak of the might of your awesome deeds, but I will declare your greatness. Notice here that sometimes God works in ways that seem terrible. Sometimes God works in ways that people say, what kind of a God is that that would allow such bad things to happen and horrible things to occur? And why do we live in such a corrupt world? If God made this world, then why is it so bad? But you know what? It's by His grace that we see His goodness. Even though things to the world would look terrible to us, we see God's grace and mercy upon us. Even in the storms, even in a tornado, even in the destruction of things, the terrible things that we see, we know that God is in control. Verse 7, they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Again, what are we to praise God for? It says here, his abundant, extravagant goodness and his righteousness, his holiness. I guess the question David is asking here, how great is God? How righteous is God? Have you ever asked yourself that? We, we sang songs, holy is your name. Holy is your name. But can I stretch you into that, what that really is trying to say? It's not his name that's holy. It's, it's him. He's the holy one. He is the righteous one. He is wholly righteous with a W, whole. He's completely righteous. And he is wholly righteous. He is righteous like no other. So he is completely righteous, completely holy, and he is completely good. 
And so verse 7, I shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Verse 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Between verse 7 and 8, you've got a righteous God and verse 8, you have a merciful God. I want you to look at the comparisons here. What if God were the opposite of verse 8? Think about that for just a minute. Look at your Bible, verse 8, read it, and then contemplate. What if God was the opposite of verse 8? That would be terrible. It would be terrifying if the Lord is not gracious. Where does that leave me? If God is not merciful, where does that leave me? What if he was quick to anger? Whoa, what would that sound like? What would that look like? But thanks be to God that he's not. He is slow to anger. He is gracious. He is merciful. Thankfully, God is abounding in steadfast love. Now, what is, what's up with the steadfast love? Why not just say God is love right here? David knows that God's love is not just love for a moment. God's love is a steadfast, persevering, he's never unloving. He is always love. He is always good. But he's also always holy and righteous. This speaks in verse, uh, actually, let's go to verse 9. The Lord is good to all. And his mercy is over all that he has made. Now, please don't misread this. This is not saying that uh, all people are saved, that God loves them all. We're all going to heaven. Uh, We're not universalists, all right? This is general grace. This is God's love for his creation. And yes, it is good. When God created us, it's good, all of us. And And he is merciful over all. Guess what? The rain falls both to those that are saved and lost. God's sun rises and falls both on those who are saved. God is good to us all. The Lord is good. His mercy to all that he has made in creation. And let me just say this. This is not going to be up on your screen, but I, I tapped into a verse in Job that talks about how we should see the goodness of God just by his creation. In Job 12, 7 to 10, listen to this. But ask the animals, God said, and they will teach you, or the birds in the sky, and they will tell you, or speak to the earth, and it will teach you, or let the fish in the sea inform you, which of all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this. In his hand, get this, in God's hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. God loves us all. He says, the Lord is good to all. Look at verse 10. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord. All your saints shall bless you. Get that, verse 10. All your works will give thanks to you, but it's all your saints that are going to bless you. In Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible quality, his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly seen and understood from that which has been made, so that people are without excuse. Notice here that it's the creation that gives thanks to God, but it is His saints that praise 
and bless him. We'll unpack a little bit more about there's a special group of people that understand who God is better than anyone else in the world. I think this leads us to verse 11 to 13. So this section, 11 to 13, after, after he says that your works will thank you, but your saints will bless you, what is it that the saints should do? Those of us who have come to Christ, those of us who are believers in God, what are we to do in this world to help others see what we see? Verse 11. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds, the glorious splendor, not of creation, of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all of his works. Now, when you're talking about the kingdom of God, do you, does that spring forward? Do you automatically go to the New Testament? The kingdom of God. It's an everlasting kingdom. Jesus came on the scene and said, the kingdom is now in, at hand, in your presence. Jesus bringing the kingdom of, telling of the kingdom of God. Verse 11, they will speak of the glory of your kingdom and to tell of your power, not just the power to create. How about the power to recreate? How about the power to regenerate that which is, is dead to bring forth life? Why don't we declare the power of God to save? To make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and your glorious kingdom that they might see him for who he truly is. Glorious, majestic, powerful. Now, again, in verse 14 to 16, we see some more general grace given to all. Our God is active. You know, there's, a, there's probably been, through time, numbers of generations or people that thought that God started this thing called creation, and then he went to his, his own kingdom and left us all alone. Like a deist would say something like that, or, or others would say, well, God made it, but he's no longer active. He's no longer involved in our world. We're on our own. Well, I think David would differ. I think this would tell us, look at the things that God is actively doing. Verse 14 to 16. The Lord, God, Jehovah, Yahweh, upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you, God, give them their food in due season. You open your hand, and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Would you take a look there in 14 to 15, and as we have in your bulletin, I've underlined the words that God is doing actively. God upholds us. He raises us. He gives us our food. He opens his hand and he dissatisfies us with joy in living. Now, what, what's going on here is the activity of God, the Lord doing something in our midst. 
David was recognizing that God is active, God is present, God is upholding. Do you realize, you don't, I don't even think about this, but I know this is true. If God was to take a break, what would happen? If God was to say, all right, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to hold everything in my hand. I'm not going to keep the stars in line. I'm not going to keep gravity in effect. I'm not going to keep any of this. I'm going to take a break. Your heartbeat, are you keeping your heartbeat going? If God took a break for a second, I'm telling you he's active. He's actively engaged and actively upholding and giving. In fact, as I was studying this psalm, I did not realize that the Hebrew people actually took Psalm 1 and 45 and they quoted it in their, in their mealtime. A meal, like your mealtime prayer. Thank you, God, for this food. You know that prayer you pray. Well, the, the children of Israel would pray this psalm. Why? Because of verse 15. Your eyes, the eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food. You give us our food. Now, Psalm 145 is not a mealtime psalm. They're just taking one verse and taking it as acknowledgement that God gives. And all he gives is good. Now, verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all of his ways and kind in all of his works. Notice the double trait of being all righteous, but at the same time, kind in all of his works. Earlier, we saw that God is both great and gracious. He is both mighty and merciful. He is glorious, but he's good. We get to see who it is that gets to enjoy this in just a moment. But let's take a look at verse 17. The Lord is righteous. How righteous? In all of his ways. He never does anything that's unrighteous. He never has. He never will. Let's take a look at who is it then that gets to enjoy God like this? Is it everybody that gets to enjoy this wonderful, wonderful, gracious God? If we've been in Romans, in Romans chapter 1, we don't deserve any of this. We should experience the opposite of that. We should be condemned by this holy God. So who is it that gets to enjoy these attributes of God? David points it out in verse 18 to 20. Take a look. Verse 18, the Lord is near. To who? To all who call on him. To all who call on him in truth. Verse 18, if you want to look, if you want to mark a verse in the Old Testament that you could highlight in the New Testament the same way, it would be Psalm 145, verse 18, and Romans 10, 13. Call on, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But you must call on him in truth. The Lord is near to all who call on him. Verse 19, he fulfills the desires of who? Of those who fear him. Now, what David is doing is he is going to drop a line between those that are in God's kingdom and those that are not in God's kingdom. Those that are in God's kingdom get to experience all this wonders of God beyond creation. Now it's personal. Guys, now it becomes very personal. And if you think God is, is at, at hand's length, 
You've never experienced God until you've experienced him by drawing near to him by faith and truth and salvation. Look at verse 19. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. He rescues them because they're crying out to him. Now, you know, in Israel, they cried out for many, many years. And finally, in Moses, God declared, I hear the cry of my people. And he delivered them from Pharaoh. But that's simply a, a temporary time. You, what you need to know, you don't need to be delivered from Pharaoh. You need to be delivered from, from your sin. You need to be delivered like that forever. If you want to see God save you, it's not from a circumstance. You need to cry out for him to save you forever for salvation itself. Verse 20, the Lord preserves who? The Lord preserves all who love him. What does he do with those who reject him? It says, but all the wicked, all the wicked will be destroyed in an everlasting destruction. But those who love him, he preserves. Now, I had a, I had a grandmother. I don't even know why I'm thinking. I just had a random thought. Here's a random thought. Preserves. All right? I had a fruit seller growing up. And we had some preserves, and we had other things canned and fruit and all kinds of things. My, my granny would come visit and, in the summer, and we'd, we'd make some preserves. Now, they'd put, in, they'd put it in the fruit cellar, which is down in the ground, and it was cool down there, and that preserved for a pretty good length of time. A good length of time. Now, Denise, I don't know if Denise is here, but he's, she gives us some things, and she always puts a date on them. Always puts a date on them. I'm supposed to eat this before. My dad never understood the date on a can's... He, this thing didn't even look good. And Dad would say, oh, it's got to be good. It was in the cellar. Now, preservation, our preservation is temporary. You can make preserves, and you can preserve it for a little while. When God preserves his pre- preservation, he's going to keep you forever. I'll never leave you, forsake you. You're, you're mine, and I'm going to preserve you. Now, that's only for those who what? Love him. So David made in verses 18 to 20 some clear distinctions between experiencing God. God is near to those who call on him. Well, what does God feel like for those who don't give a rip about him? God? You mean there is a God? I didn't know there was a God. See, distant. But to you who love him, yeah, he lives within me by by the power of his spirit. That's how near he is. Our God is near because we love him. We understand what he's done for us. We've seen his salvation in Christ Jesus. These verses tell us much about that. He will will fulfill our desires if you fear and cry out to him. He will sustain and preserve you when you love him, but he will declare the fate of the wicked. They will be judged. They will be condemned. Now, verse 21 is like a summary statement of all verses 1 to 20. How would David possibly sum up all that he said? Now think, we've come a long ways, guys. We have come from the great, majestic splendor of his majesty to the kindness 
and, and the uh, gracious gifts that he gives us, even with our food, even with uh, salvation, all these things. We made a distinction from those who love him and those that reject him. God is good and great. How would you summarize all that? Well, David gives us his last declaration, and it's as if he cannot contain it within himself. He can't keep it secret. By the way, salvation has never been a secret. It's never meant to be personally in your heart, like tucked away, like that's your little private Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross in front of all to see. The empty tomb, the, the, the stone rolled away. Why? So you can see he's not there. Salvation is to be displayed. We as God's people are to declare. We are to speak of God. So David, verse 21, my mouth, not somebody else's mouth, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. Let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. David cannot not speak of his glorious, majestic, and wonderful God. There's a song out, well, it'll date me if I say it, but here we go. You can't shut up about it. Anybody know that song? Anyway, you can't shut up about it. What? God, Jesus, salvation. Are you like that? Are, do you speak of God like that? When I don't mean obnoxiously. I just mean normally. This ought to be normal for the believer to speak of the wonders of God. To be, just to be in awe of God. And sometimes I'm actually speechless because He's so big. I don't know what to say about God. And then it comes. Well, wait a minute. He is holy. He is awesome. He is majestic. He is gracious. David cannot not speak. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. He is overwhelmed at the glorious splendor of God's majestic holiness. He must speak of him to everyone. Why? Why should we speak so great about God? I mean, once you know who God is, you ought to stop talking about it. I mean, you, you're there. You're saved. Now you can stop talking about it. David says, so that all flesh might know. So that everyone might know. Why would you stop talking? Now, in Luke 6.45, it says, out of the abundance of the heart, our mouth speaks. David finishes Psalm 145 with, I will speak of the greatness of God. My mouth will speak. And then in Luke it says, from the abundance of our heart, our mouth speaks. So maybe we don't speak because we're not loving God like we should. Or maybe we could look back and pick out some of these 18, 19, and 20. Maybe we're not calling on Him. Maybe our prayer life is not where it ought to be. It's no wonder we don't speak of God. We're not experiencing Him like we should. Maybe we're not in awe of Him. Because I'm telling you, if you get in awe of something, I've seen it, I've done it, something happens and it's crazy, I mean, it's just weird. I, a rainbow yesterday, anybody see that thing? There was a rainbow yesterday right, right here in Nixa, 
And we had people, we had guests, we have company from Louisiana here, out in the yard, hey, look at that, look at that. We spoke of something we saw. Hey, look at that. If you have seen Jesus, like the video, you've seen him. Hey, look at that. Speak of what you see. We do it in nature, we ought to do it with God. My mouth speaks of the praise of the Lord. From the abundance of our hearts, we shall speak. Well, let's make some applications if we haven't already. (laughs) All of this Psalm 145 is the greatness of God that ought to produce in us the greatest of praise. Can you say along with David in verse 1, you are my God and you are my king? Can you say it? That's my God. What David is talking about is my God. That's my king. If not, why not cry out to him right now and let him draw near to you? He he draws near to those who cry out in faith and believe. That's why Jesus came. So that you might see God and respond to him by the obedience of faith. Maybe this could happen to you. Maybe this is something you need to hear this morning. Believer, if you're here this morning and you've kind of been, kind of been shallow, maybe Psalm 145 showed you that there's depths to God that you don't even know. You need to not be shallow. You need to be deep. Deep in what? Deep in praise. How big is your God? Can you see the glorious splendor of His majesty? majesty and majestic holiness. Let that reality transform your relationship. He is righteous and kind. You know how strange that is? He is totally righteous. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. A blazing fire of righteousness. And yet he is kind. He is mighty and he is merciful. Do you realize what that is? How could he be mighty and still be merciful? Do you know where his righteousness and kindness, do you know where his greatness and goodness, do you know where all that stuff comes together? At the cross of Christ. He is merciful to us He is mighty against sin. He is righteous and holy, and yet He is kind to us. I hope you see it. I hope you see what David is declaring. Do you see Him? Why not respond to Him in the obedience of faith? I don't know what that does to you, but I, could, I mean, there's other psalms, and your, other, your pastors here are going to be unpacking other psalms. In fact, some of them came up to me and said, hey, that sounds a lot like the one I'm doing. It's not a competition, all right? What it is, is a, it's a matter of revealing to us who God is and what He does. He saves sinners by faith in Christ alone. He reveals himself. You know, we would know nothing of God 
other than general things without specific revelations like this. 145. It changes you. I think anyone who begins to take an in-depth look at who God is, it changes you. The Knowledge of the Holy. Anybody ever read that little book? There's a little book called The Knowledge of the Holy by Tozer. Beth put me onto that one time and said, hey, take a look at this. Read this thing. I couldn't put it down. It was like little, I'm so glad it's short chapters. One, for a slow reader like me, and two, big words like Tozer uses. So I got a lot of big words in a few pages. And guess what the big words are about? God. Every chapter, the knowledge of the holy, and it like blows your mind. It's like, I know God, but I want to know him more. He's big. So what? What does it do to you? It ought to ramp up your praise. It ought to drop you to your knees and say, God, you're big enough to, to absolutely destroy it all, and yet you're kind. Thank you, God. I don't know what the impact is on you. I don't know what... Psalm 145 has challenged you with. If you're here right now and you've never known God other than general things, you don't know the specific, you don't know the kindness of God, you don't know the crying out and He answers you, you don't know those things. It's because you've never been totally surrendered to in a faith response to God's response to your sin. God's action, if you can yield to that, then comes what David says in verses, whatever that was, 17 or 14, whatever, where it says, we come to God by faith. And you experience God a whole new way. And you keep experiencing. Well, I would like to close with a quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Spurgeon understood... (laughs) That when anybody tries to describe God, if anybody's trying to preach a message on, uh, and maybe I bit off more than I could chew in this 145, but I'm telling you, I was in tears before I came up here because I thought, I'm about to come up here and try to talk about the greatness of God, and I'm not going to do it just. I know I'm not. Spurgeon said, no chorus is too loud. No orchestra too big. No psalm too lofty for the lauding of the Lord of Lords, King of Kings. Nothing too big for him. 